Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. Let's open our Bibles to Isaiah 52, verse 13 this morning. Isaiah 52, starting in verse 13. This is our last sermon in our summer sermon series on the cross of Jesus. I'm so excited to introduce to you all our fall sermon series on launch Sunday next week. But this morning we will look at one of the most important passages in the Bible about the cross of Jesus. And the surprising thing about it is that it was written seven centuries before Jesus even came onto the scene, and before his death. So I'll just read the text. There's a lot to cover. You can follow along. I'd encourage you to listen along or read along. We'll pray, and then we'll dig in and see what God has for us this morning. This is God's word. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. And what these kings have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised. And we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are here. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Verse 10, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him, to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. 
After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. And he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. And he will divide the spoils with the strong. Because he poured out his life unto death. And was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many. And made intercession for the transgressors. This is God's word. Lord, with the words of my mouth and with the meditation of all of our hearts here this morning, be pleasing and acceptable to you. You are our rock. You are our redeemer. Holy Spirit, would you open the eyes of our hearts so that we would not just learn new information this morning, but that we would actually encounter the servant of the Lord. Our Savior. That our hearts would actually be, by the time this is over, more in love with Him than they are right now. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, so in our family, as Christmas nears, we put up a tree in our living room. I think that's pretty normal. One of the first things that we do, though, when we do that, is we grab my dad's model train set. It used to be his really old one. Now it's his more new one that he gave to us. And I think we have enough track to create like a circle around the trunk of our Christmas tree. Just enough to create a circle. And then what we do is we set the train carefully on the track. And if any of you have done this before, you know that's a chore. Anybody? It's really hard. (laughs) And then we plug in the transformer. And then there's this great moment where we sort of push the throttle on the transformer. And the train starts to move ever so slowly. And then it starts to glide on the trails. And it's a glorious thing. It's like the beginning of Advent for us. At least for me. I love it. But that great moment never lasts very long. Because inevitably and eventually this train gets knocked off its tracks. Uh, Something always knocks it off the track. I've either pushed the throttle too hard or a tree branch or, in our case, a dog or perhaps the knee of a child from time to time. And here's the thing. The first week of that train, I'm always on my knees getting that train back onto the track. I'm doing everything I can to get that thing set. But over time, I start to care less and less and less. So that by the end of Advent, by the time Christmas rolls around, usually the train is, like, if it's a good day, it's standing up. (laughs) But most of the time, it's on its side and disconnected and toppled over. Sometimes I think this image describes my walk with Jesus. Let me tell you how. At the beginning of my journey with Jesus, I do everything I can to stay on track. There isn't a moment that I don't waste to get back up. But as the knocks start to add up, I start to get weary. And then I start to ask myself, why get back on the tracks? Maybe this is your story too. Maybe at the beginning of your faith journey... You're on track. We're excited. We're amazed that God would save us. We're amazed that God would use us for his rescue mission. And something comes along and bumps us off the track. Maybe it was the first time a God dream died. Maybe it was the first time we tasted suffering as a Jesus follower. Maybe it was an embarrassing failure regardless. In the early days, 
We do whatever, whatever it takes to get back onto God's mission. But over time, more and more bumps mean it's harder and harder to get on track. And then soon, though we never remember the moment it happened, we can be like my train set over here. On its side. Sitting on the sidelines. Too many bumps came along. Disillusionment. With the church, with its leaders. Doubts. Weariness. Just straight up weariness. Loss. In our heads, we know that the track is where the power is. It's connected to the transformer. We know we're built to be on the track. We know that it's the narrow path of abundant life. But when you've been derailed for the umpteenth time, it's impossible to get back on. Well, whether that's you or not, this image of a derailed train is a helpful image for me and I hope for all of you as we think about ancient Israel. Israel was designed by God for a simple mission. In fact, their salvation, their intimacy with God himself was intrinsically connected to his mission. To the rails on the track. They were blessed to bless others. They were freed up to free up others. They were loved to love others. They were helped to help others. The image Isaiah loves to use, this prophet that we're reading from, is that of a light. So they were called to be a light in a world shrouded in darkness. So imagine driving for hours to go camping for the weekend, but traffic holds you up. And maybe this has been your experience. And so you show up late to your campsite. But you're thinking, it's okay, it's pitch black, but I don't care because I have a headlamp. I packed it. But then you go and you reach for your headlamp in your truck, trunk or wherever, and you have a pit in your stomach because, yeah, you left your headlamp at home. So suddenly now you have to make your campsite in pitch black. And you've never been there before. And it's kind of scary. You're starting to think, maybe I should sleep in my car. Well, then suddenly someone comes along. You see a path. You see somebody walking down the path. And there is a light. They have a headlamp. And by the way, they have two or three more. That is the mission of Israel. To be a light in the dark world. To be rescued in order to rescue others with his gospel. God gives us light. We provide light to others to bless the nation. God says to them, take my blessing. Take my face shining presence. Take my delight and start a forest fire. Like, but not one that destroys, but one that actually brings life wherever it goes. So that my glory and my grace would cover the whole world, not just you, but the whole world, like the waters cover the sea, which is entirely. That is the mission of God's people. But sadly, ancient Israel keeps getting bumped off the rails big time. Some words to describe God's people and just the text we read alone this morning. Pain, suffering, transgression, verses 5 and 8. Iniquity, verses 5 and 6. Stray, verse 6. Rebellion, verse 6. Sin, verse 12. 
So they were knocked off the rails of their mission by others, but also by their own doing. They were sinners and they were sufferers. And so this meant they were far from the tracks. So much so that at one point, the very face shining presence of God was in a way removed from them. This moment is called the exile. God's people were evicted from God's house. The temple, the very focal point of God's reliable presence. And so the exile causes them to ask, how can we get back on mission? Has God given up on us? How can we bless others with God's blessing when all of life feels like a curse? And that's a question they were asking. It could be a question you were asking this morning. Well, if this is where they are, it's in this space where God called Isaiah to speak some words to his people. This is God saying, I know you are off track. I also know you are done trying to get back on track yourself. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And the way I'm going to do it is unlike anything that you could have imagined. How so? Well, God gives them a picture through Isaiah and a promise of a future day when God would send this mysterious and surprising leader who would execute the mission of Israel perfectly. Who would be a light, always. And who would pay the penalty for all our failures to do the same. Who is this mysterious leader? Well, Isaiah calls him the servant of Israel. And we on the other side of the New Testament know more than Isaiah. That's scandalous. That's crazy. We know more than Isaiah does. Isaiah was speaking of Jesus. And so Isaiah is basically saying, it is Jesus alone who will get us back on track. Who will set us on fire again. It's Jesus alone who will put us back on mission. And Jesus does this in three fundamental ways. We see it from Isaiah's prophecy. This poem that we have about the servant. It'll be through Jesus' crucifixion. It'll be through Jesus' incarnation. And through his substitution. I want to talk about all three. So first, his crucifixion. Read verses 14 and 15 with me of chapter, 12, of chapter 52. It says, just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond all likeness. So also he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths in awe because of him. For what they were not told, they will now see and what they have not heard, they will not understand. Something is being revealed. Now, the crucifixion is not mentioned by name in this prophecy. But what is described is death that is two things at once. Appalling and atoning. This death is appalling. It says in verse 14 that there were many who were appalled at him. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. 
Appalling because the nature of his death would somehow be uniquely degrading and dehumanizing. Which is exactly why the Roman Empire designed crucifixion. Fleming Rutledge showed me that the cross is not just like any other death. The early church doesn't say Jesus died a mere martyr's death. There were many martyrs in that day. No, no, the early church in the New Testament point out time and time again that Jesus was uniquely crucified. Why? Because as she taught me, the manner in which Jesus died matters. She writes, I'll quote her, Jesus' situation under the harsh judgment of Rome was analogous to our situation under sin. He was condemned. He was rendered helpless and powerless. He was stripped of his humanity. He was reduced to the status of a beast, declared unfit to live. This is what happens on the cross. And this is why, by the way, Jesus' death is uniquely appalling. It matches the appalling nature of the problem that we find ourselves in. In this world. His death is appalling. But Isaiah quickly pivots and says that his death that appalls to many somehow atones for many. That's what sprinkling refers to. If you were around for the Leviticus message a couple weeks ago. Yes, that happened. If you're new with us, that happened. We had this message on Leviticus. Um, Blood of the sacrifice was sprinkled. Do you remember this? And what happened? Cleansing happened. Cleansing happened. And the sprinkling of blood cleansed all who had their faith in the Lord and his promises. So this appalling death of the servant, Isaiah is saying, would somehow cleanse us from sin. It's a priestly action. And not just Israel. Did you notice? The nations. Kings shut their mouths in awe. So first their mouths are opened because they are appalled. And then something happens. A shift happens. Their mouths are opened. And then they shut. They're closed. Because they are amazed. A few years ago, uh, while in the shutdown era of of the pandemic, our family started to work on puzzles. And I say I started to work on puzzles because we I'd never done them before. My wife grew up doing them. I'd never grown up doing them. Um, and so I had a lot of learning to do. One thing I learned immediately is if you want to complete a puzzle in decent time, you need to keep the lid of the box up and in full vision at all times. I know there's some of you out there who like turn it upside down. Uh, my sister-in-law actually turns all the pieces upside down. They're in a different world. But for me, I need to actually look at the bigger picture in order to understand what it is that I am trying to look at. I need the box cover nearby or else I get stuck and I give up. Well, something like this is going on in Isaiah's prophecy. He's saying a servant is coming back to put us all back on track. And it's through a totally confusing, disorienting, appalling way. A disfigurement. An absolutely de- dehumanizing thing. And that at first confuses us. But once we see the big picture. Like these kings. We worship. We move from being appalled to being in awe. And this is the crucifixion in a nutshell, isn't it? Initially, it causes us to look away. It's offensive. It's offensive to our pride. 
Is our sin that bad? I don't think so. No. It's offensive to what we think might be proper of God. But then we realize that this is how God himself cleans us. And then we make the move from being appalled to being in awe. You may be off track with God. That's okay. But you will never get back on track until you first see that Jesus cleansed you at greatest cost. He knows we're off track. That's why he died. His crucifixion. He keeps us on mission with that, but he also keeps us on mission if we keep reading in this text by his incarnation, the incarnation of Jesus. So incarnation means in the flesh. Incarnation, in the flesh. And this is a great mystery that Christians confess about Jesus, that he is God in the flesh. God has drawn near to us by becoming one of us. He does not ever cease being God, but he is fully human. And that is a mystery reconfess. If that doesn't blow your mind, then you're not paying attention. It's a profound mystery. But we see it professed time and time again throughout the scriptures, especially here. We're going to see it in verse 13 in the first three verses of 53. Chapter 53. First, verse 13 and 52 tells us that this servant is uniquely high and exalted. What does it say? See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. This is God language, by the way. These words are used in other places of Isaiah to describe God and God alone. High, lifted up, exalted. So right away we see that this servant is no mere human. Jesus is high and exalted, which is to say, Jesus is God. But the same poem describes this high and lifted one as gentle and lowly. Look at verses 1-3 through with me again. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. No beauty or majesty to attract us to himself. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Despised, rejected, a man of suffering, familiar with pain. Like one who people hide their faces from. So how can God who made the ground come up out of the ground? That should be the profound puzzle that we wrestle with right now in this text. And the only answer that we have is incarnation. We see this also in verse 1, which talks about revealing the arm of the Lord. So Old Testament scholar Alec Modier says that up to this point in Israel's story, the arm of the Lord has never been seen. The only thing that has been seen and experienced in their life has been what the arm of the Lord has done. And Deuteronomy 7, 18 says, this arm has done some amazing things. You shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all of Egypt. The great trials that your eyes saw, the signs, the wonders, the mighty hand and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. So they know what the arm does, but they haven't seen the arm in person. This would be like meeting your favorite artist or your favorite musician or your favorite author for the first time. So call in mind that person. You've spent your whole life enjoying their work, but you've never met them.
pretend we live in an age where there's no social media, so you can kind of watch your life, you know, anyway. In a few weeks, I'm going to see my absolute favorite musician of all time. His name's Julian Lodge. Maybe you've never heard of him. I don't hold it against you. Part of me is very nervous to see him perform because they always say, never meet your heroes. <laughs> never meet your heroes. They're only going to let you down. And sometimes that's true. Maybe most of the time that's true. Well, in verse 1, we get to finally meet the arm of the Lord. We get to see the salvation of the Lord himself. And what do we see? What do we see? We see a tender shoot. A little root in the desert ground. An unimpressive human from the same dirt that we are made out of. We see a servant who's familiar with suffering and pain, the suffering and pain that we experience. As Dane Orland points out in his magnificent little book, Gentle and Lowly, in all of the pages of the Gospels, we get insight into Jesus' teaching, we get insight into Jesus' actions, but only one instance do we get an insight into his heart by his own self-disclosure. And when we get that, Jesus says, I am in heart, gentle and lowly. Jesus is high and lifted up. He is God. He's the Lord. He's the maker. He's the king. And yet he is here, gentle and lowly. And he does this. Why? So that we would come to him. Again, Jesus knows you're off track. This is no surprise to him. That's why he came. That's what incarnation is about. So you would return. Which takes us to our final point here. The servant puts us back on mission by crucifixion, by incarnation. But both of these make no sense unless we rest in his substitution. The life of a servant, if we read this text straight, is a life of substitution. So read with me in verse 4 and notice the pronouns. He and we. And whenever you hear he, think of Jesus. Whenever you hear we, think of yourself and all of us sitting together. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We are like sheep who have gone astray, who have gone our own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 7, he was oppressed, afflicted, but he didn't open his mouth. He was led to a, slum, a, a lamb like a slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, he did not open his mouth. That means this was willing and purposeful. It was his mission to do so, his glad mission to do so, the New Testament says. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Think of his trial. Yeah, who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. Why, oh why have you forsaken me, O oh Lord? For the transgression of my people he was punished. And he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Or a rich one. Think of his burial. Though he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. He's the word walking. He's truth walking. 
Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring. That's us, friends. And prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. And he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. And he will divide the spoils into the strong. Because he poured out his life unto death. And was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many. And made intercession for the transgressors. Remember. This was not written after the death of Jesus. Centuries before. We and he. We and he. That is the gospel in a two word nutshell. We bring our pain. We bring our suffering. We bring our transgressions. Our iniquities. Our desire to stray. Our curse. Our accidental sins. Our high handed sins. And he takes it. He bears it. He is punished for it. He dies for it. He willingly suffers for it. He is cut off for it. He makes intercession for it. He is judged as judge for it. And for you. In other words, an exchange happens and is promised. And this is from Isaiah's mouth, from God himself, the answer to our strain, the answer to our smoldering wick. The fact that we are not on mission, again, is not a surprise to God. What is a surprise is how he would go about to fix it. And he goes about to fix it through Jesus. In his life and in his death and in his resurrection, he gives us righteousness and life, it says in verse 11. He justifies the many. If we are appalled, as it says in the beginning, as we are, we look at that cross. At the end, we are justified. Because of God's strange mercy. This week I was reminded of a short story by the late Lutheran pastor and the National Book Award winning author Walter Wangren Jr. The story is called Ragman and it tells the story about, and I'll quote him, a young man, handsome and strong, walking the alleys of our city. But there's really something strange about this man. And I'll just read a bit so you get the idea as we close. He was pulling an old cart filled with clothes, both bright and new. And he was calling in a clear tenor voice, rags. All the air was foul in the first light, filthy to be crossed by such sweet music. Rags, new rags for old. I take your tired rags, rags. Now this is a wonder, I thought to myself, for the man that stood six feet four, his arms were like tree limbs, hard and muscular. His eyes flashed intelligence. Could he find no better job than this, to be a ragman in the inner city? I followed him. My curiosity drove me, and I wasn't disappointed. Soon the ragman saw a woman sitting on her back porch. She was sobbing into a handkerchief, sighing, and shedding a thousand tears. Her knees and her elbows made a sad X. Her shoulders shook. Her heart was breaking. The ragman stopped his cart. Quietly he walked to the woman, stepping round tin cans, dead toys, and pampers. Give me your rag, he said gently, and I'll give you another. He slipped the handkerchief from her eyes. She looked up, and he laid across her palm a linen cloth so clean and new that it shined, and she blinked from the gift to the giver. And then as she began to, as he began to pull his cart again, the ragman did a strange thing. He put her stained handkerchief to his own face, and then he began to weep. 
to sob as grievously as she had done before. His shoulders shaking. Yet she was left without a tear. So this, I won't read the rest of the story, I encourage you to. This sobbing man soon trades his bright eyes for a girl's who only has bleeding sockets. He trades his strong arm with a man who has lost his arm. He trades his sobriety with an alcoholic living on the street. And by the time the story ends, this man was, quote, weeping uncontrollably, bleeding freely at the forehead, pulling his cart with one arm, stumbling for drunkenness, falling again and again, exhausted, old, old, and sick. And then eventually he comes to a landfill to lay down and die, but this ragman rises in three days. And the narrator of this story asks the ragman in his glory, who is no longer in rags, to dress her. And he does. And he does. And he will for you too. He will for you too. Just give him your rags. Yes, we are in exile. We are off the track. We've disqualified ourselves from being whites. But Jesus takes it all. And now you can go forth, not in spite of your weakness, but precisely because of your weakness. Not in spite of your story, but precisely because of your story. Because the light we bring to the world is not our own. Amen? Do you believe that? The light we bring to the world is not our own. So Jesus, restore to us your light. We're weary, we're tired, we're burnt out, we're broken. We're surprised we're here. And yet you have us here. And with this servant of the Lord, this Jesus, trade his place with ours. Give us his righteousness for our rags. And it's in his name we pray. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.